0: I loved the emotional rush of being scared. I still do, of course. I don't go out much to haunted houses, but I still love good, old-fashioned, scary stories.
1: Listener discretion is advised. For today's episode, we're going back to the spring of 1988. On April 30th, 1988, the borough of Cillings Grove, Pennsylvania reclaimed the record for the longest banana split. Eight years earlier, in 1980, they won the title by constructing a one and a half mile long banana split. They lost the title in 1985 to the Zeta Beta Tau Sorority at Bowling Green University in Ohio. They made a banana split that was four miles long. On April 30th, 1988, Cillings Grove created a banana split that was four and a half miles long. To construct a foot of the banana split, people had to buy a $2 ticket. The banana split contained 33,000 bananas, 2,500 gallons of ice cream, and 150 gallons of chocolate syrup. The record stood for the next 29 years. Now on March 25, 2017, the town of Innisfail, Australia, beat Onsgrove's record by constructing a 4.97 mile long banana split. Innisfail currently holds the record. In early May 1988, there were two major art sales at auctions. Jackson Pollock's search was sold to a Japanese art dealer for $4.8 million. It was Pollock's last work on canvas. At the time, it was a record for contemporary art sold at an auction. The other major sale was Diver by Jasper Johns. On May 3rd, it was sold at auction for $4.2 million. It was purchased by Norman and Irma Brahman, who were the owners of the NFL team, the Philadelphia Eagles. The painting is currently at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, but it is not on display. The Pacific Engineering and Production Company of Nevada Chemical Plant, known by the acronym PEPCON, was located in Henderson, Nevada. The plant was about 10 miles from Las Vegas. It was one of two plants in the United States that manufactured Ammonium perchlorate, an incredibly unstable chemical used in rocket fuel. After the Challenger explosion in 1986, shipments of the chemical were suspended, so there was a stockpile of 6 million pounds of the chemical at the plant. On May 4, 1988, a welder's torch started a small fire in the plant. Unfortunately, the fire spread quickly and it led to 7 explosions. The last explosion registered 3.5 on the Richter scale. It caused damage within a 10 mile radius. It was the largest accidental civilian explosion in the United States. Two people were killed, and 372 people were injured. On May 6, 1988, the number one movie at the American box office was the police drama, Colors, directed by Dennis Hopper. The number one song was One More Try by George Michael. Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows. From the Nespod Studios... Enjoy the show.
1: Mount Vernon is a small city in Southern Illinois. In May 1988, it was home to Jana Marie Reynolds and her husband, Jeff. Southern Illinois is a beautiful area with lots of farmland. There are many state parks and national forests, orchards and wineries. Many people consider it a quaint and peaceful area. In the late 1970s and 1980s, there was a rash of brutal, unsolved murders and a mass murder that made national headlines. The mass murder happened on November 8, 1985 in Mount Vernon. 18-year-old Tom O'Dell was high on LSD. For years, he had suffered abuse at the hands of his mother. His father did nothing to stop it. That morning, Tom was home alone with his 39 year old father, Robert. Tom attacked him with a kitchen knife and stabbed him several times. He dragged his father's body into the bathroom attached to the master bedroom. When his 39 year old mother, Caroline, came home a short time later, he attacked her. He led her into the master bedroom and forced her to look at her dead husband. He then stabbed her to death. After killing his parents, he went and had lunch with his girlfriend. He returned home and waited for his 10-year-old brother, Scott, to get home from school. When Scott was home, Tom tried to strangle him with his hands, but he had problems killing the boy, so he strangled him to death with a pair of pajama bottoms. He placed his body in the master bedroom. Tom then went and picked up his 14-year-old sister, Robin, and his 13-year-old brother, Sean, from school and brought them home. He then blindfolded Sean and tied his wrists behind his back. He led him into the master bedroom and stabbed him to death. Tom then got his sister, Robin, and told her he had a surprise for her. He put his hands over her eyes and led her into the master bedroom. He then removed his hands from her eyes. Robin was mortified by the sight of her dead family members. Tom then stabbed her to death. Tom was arrested shortly after the murders. In 1986, he was convicted of five murders and he was sentenced to death. But in 2003, his sentence was commuted to life. The murder shocked the people of Southern Illinois, but as we mentioned, that was just one set of murders that shocked the area. There was also a rash of unsolved murders that started on November 28, 1977. 62-year-old Lucille Filigore lived outside of Carbondale, Illinois. She was a retired school teacher. In retirement, she ran an antique shop out of the house that she shared with her husband. At 2 p.m. she was home alone and she spoke to a relative on the phone. Three hours later, her husband came home and found her dead body in the basement. She had been strangled to death. The police believe that she was killed during a robbery. Ten guns, a portable TV, and her car were stolen. The car was found the next day in Carbondale, Illinois. The police learned that the car was dropped off between 3.30 and 4 p.m. on the day of the murder so the police think that Philigor was killed shortly after the phone call. It is believed at least two people were involved in the burglary and murder. A second car was seen leaving Philigor's driveway around the time she was murdered. The next murder happened about six months later in Marion, Illinois. On May 12, 1978, 51-year-old Virginia Witt went grocery shopping and returned home to an empty house. Her husband returned from a lunch appointment he found her dead body on their bed. She had been strangled, stabbed, and slashed. It did not appear that she had been sexually assaulted. On October 20th, 1978, the dead body of a man was found behind a Kmart in Carbondale. It appeared he had been shot in the back of the head with large caliber bullets. It is believed that he was killed as early as June and as late as September. He went unidentified for five months. He was then identified as John Sharp from Dawson Springs, Kentucky. He was supposedly in Southern Illinois doing construction work. Eight months after Sharp's body was found, on June 2, 1979, 19-year-old Regina Castiella of Heron, Illinois, went to a friend's birthday party. Early on the morning of June 3rd, her nude body was found hanging from one arm from a bridge in Marion. She had been strangled to death. There were no signs of sexual assault. Six months later, on June 4, 1980, 28-year-old Edward Seeds worked at a mine near Shawneetown, Illinois. Suddenly, dynamite planted in his pickup truck, exploded, and killed him. The police had a suspect, but he was never charged. Seven months later, on August 17th, 1981, 21-year-old Susan Shoemaker was raped and strangled on the campus of Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. Fourteen months later, on October 30th, 1982, some deer hunters were in a wooded area in Cobden, Illinois. They came across the dead body of a man who had been shot four times in the chest. He was fully clothed, but his shoes were missing. The pockets of his pants were turned out. Using his fingerprints, the police determined it was the dead body of 35 year old Tom Freeman. Freeman was from West Frankfort, Pennsylvania, where he lived a transient lifestyle. He held a variety of jobs, including being a long haul truck driver. His family last saw him a few months earlier in August. 26 year old Lisa Ann Carnes lived in Karnak, Illinois. On March 30th, 1984, she was found shot to death in a farmer's field near Merman, Illinois. She was last seen alive the night before in Karnak. Three years passed and there were no unsolved murders in southern Illinois. On March 4, 1987, 32-year-old Donna Cooper worked her shift at a family restaurant in Marion. Cooper was the assistant manager and part of her job was closing the restaurant and making the bank deposit at the end of the night. She called her husband shortly before midnight and said she would be a few minutes late, but when she didn't come home, he drove to the restaurant. She was gone, and so was her car. Cooper's car was found later that day in Heron, which is about a 10-minute drive from the restaurant. Her dead body was found in Crab Orchard National Wildlife Refuge in Carterville, Illinois, about 10 minutes from where her car was abandoned. The mother of three had been stabbed to death. The deposits for the restaurant were missing, so it's believed she was killed for the money. A couple months later, on May 8, 1987, the body of an infant boy was found in a wooded area near Ledford, Illinois. It's believed that the baby was only a few hours old when he died. He died for not being attended to. His body had been in the woods for two or three days. The boy and his mother have never been identified. Six months later, in Ida, Illinois, an unknown assailant brutally slaughtered the Dardine family. This crime is so horrifying that many people who know about it, including myself, consider it the worst crime they have ever heard of. If you want to know more about it, please look it up, because it's too gruesome to talk about here. Five months after the massacre, 39-year-old truck driver Orville Murphy and his 48-year-old wife, Martha, were found shot to death in their home outside of White Ash, Illinois. Just over a month later, on April 22, 1988, 82-year-old widower and retired coal miner Joe Bowman was found shot to death in his White Ash home. He had been shot once in the head. It's believed he was killed in the commission of a robbery. Then we come to May 6, 1988, and the subject of today's episode. Jenna Reynolds was a licensed practical nurse at Good Samaritan Hospital in Mount Vernon. She was also in school working on her associate degree. She was days away from graduating. Her husband, 24-year-old Jeff Reynolds, worked at a printing company. The couple had been high school sweethearts and had been married for less than a year. On the night of May 5th, 1988, Jeff worked overnight. He came home the next morning and found something strange. It appeared that someone had broken into his house through the back door. He made his way to the bedroom he shared with his wife. He found 22-year-old Jana on the bed in a pool of blood. Her death had been brutal. She had been stabbed multiple times. Her throat had been cut several times. Her right hand had nearly been amputated. She had also been sexually assaulted. Jeff immediately called 911 and told the operator that his wife had been murdered and mutilated. The police put a lot of effort into solving the case. In the 12 days after the murder, they logged 650 investigative hours and followed up on over 200 leads. They cleared Jeff as a suspect. He had an airtight alibi because he was at work. Also, the couple had a good relationship and the police couldn't find a motive as to why he would want to butcher his high school sweetheart. So it wasn't long before the case went cold.
0: Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the
1: show. Unfortunately, the murders in Southern Illinois continued. A month after Jana's murder, there was another murder in Mount Vernon. On June 19, 1988, 61-year-old Gene Harsparger's house caught on fire. Harsparger died from smoke inhalation. The fire marshal determined that the fire was intentionally set. Hersberger's son lived with him, and he believed that the fire was started to harm him. 78-year-old Clinton Moglin operated a grocery store and service station in Boleski County, Illinois. He was stabbed to death in his home. After that, the rash of unsolved murders in southern Illinois ended. People thought that one person may be responsible for several of the murders, if not all of them. Because of the gruesome nature of the murders of the Dardine family, there were rumors that Satanists were behind at least some of the murders. Or different killers may have committed each murder or mass murder. Unfortunately, the cases, including the murder of 22-year-old Janet Reynolds, all went cold. 13 years passed after Janna's murder and many things had changed. In August 2001, Janna Reynolds' case was reopened. Forensic experts examined her pajamas with a special light, now available in 1988. They found 23 stains on it and a DNA profile was created. Using the DNA, they were able to eliminate several prime suspects. Next, the police went through old case files to see if there were similar attacks in the area. On October 22, 1991, a woman who lived in Mount Vernon was home alone. A man broke into her home and attempted to rape her. However, she was able to fight him off. He told her that if she told anyone about the attempted rape, he would kill her. Nevertheless, the woman decided to report the attack, but no arrests were made. A few weeks later, she was washing dishes and noticed a man looking through the windows at her. Her husband was home and he ran outside to confront the man, but he was gone by the time he got outside. The police were called and they searched the area for the peeping Tom. They came across a man named Joe Tucker. They noticed that he was awfully sweaty for a cold night. He was brought for questioning and denied that he was the peeping Tom. They couldn't prove he was the peeping Tom, so he was released. Several months later, the woman was attacked by the same man in her home. Once again, she fought him off and she called the police. No arrests were ever made in the case. The police thought that the attacks on the woman were similar to Janna's murder. They also thought that Tucker was the attacker. It turned out that they could connect Tucker to Janna in several different ways. When Janna was 16, she worked at a fast food restaurant for several months. Tucker was a cook at the restaurant during that time. Secondly, Tucker was seen in the area of Janet's murder around the time she was killed. He was even questioned about the murder and denied having anything to do with it. He voluntarily gave hair samples from his head. They were compared to hair samples found at the crime scene, but they weren't a match. But the forensic expert said that Tucker couldn't be eliminated as a suspect, it was possible that the hairs at the crime scene may not have come from the killer's head. The hairs found at the crime scene could have been pubic hair. At the time, it wasn't possible to compare head to pubic hair to tell if they came from the same person. It turned out the police still had Tucker's hair in evidence. A DNA profile was created from the hair and compared to DNA found on Jan's pajamas. It was a match. In May 2002, when Tucker's DNA was matched to the stains on Jana's pajamas, he was living in Springfield, Missouri. The police arrested 38-year-old Joe Tucker at his workplace. They interrogated him, and he denied knowing anything about the murder. The following clips of the interrogation are from cold case files, and it may not be the complete conversation. The wrong that here was enough root material for the lab to do DNA on you. The, they compared it to the DNA they found uh, on her bedding and clothes. It was a and seventeen trillion match. He said, man, ain't even that many people in the face of the earth. Somebody gotta be playing games, okay? Because y'all are trying to tell me that I murdered a girl that I only knew for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. I'm saying I didn't murder nobody and I truly don't know that girl. Okay, is that your DNA at that house? It shouldn't be. No, but is it? Is it? I don't know. Joe ain't a wiggle room in this man. None. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. Yeah, okay. you won't you take your chances with the jury. You damn right, because that was not me. After he was arrested, he was held at the Menard Correctional Center. It was there that he sought the help of someone who was known as a jailhouse lawyer. His name is Robin Gacht, an infamous criminal in Illinois. He was the leader of a satanic cult known as the Ripper Crew. It's believed that the Ripper Crew killed 17 women and one man in 1974 and 1975 in Illinois. They brutalized their victims in many ways, including rape, torture, cannibalism, and necrophilia. Gack told Tucker to write down his involvement with the murder. Tucker came back with a page of writing. Jack told him that wasn't enough and to write more. Tucker wrote five more pages that included diagrams. Gack then turned over the papers to the district attorney. He also agreed to testify against Tucker. Geck received no deal or special treatment in exchange for his testimony. Joe Tucker went to trial in April 2006. The jury deliberated for less than four hours. He was found guilty. At Tucker's sentencing hearing, the woman he attempted to rape testified about his campaign of terror against her. Joe Tucker was sentenced to life without parole. The police do not believe that Jana Reynolds was his only victim, but he's never been charged with any other murder. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment
0: and subscribe.